it up on your phone, and we'll show the verses on the screen. We are beginning our Advent series this Christmas season. We're going to take four weeks, four weeks to cover Matthew chapters 1 and 2. We're going to begin where Matthew begins, where God the Holy Spirit begins, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Please follow along as I read from God's Word. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathon, and Mathon the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 May God bless his word to our hearts and minds this morning. At the beginning of this ministry year, we we announced two primary ministry goals. I'm sure they're in the front of your minds if you were here. (laughs) One was to strengthen care, to strengthen care in our body and to strengthen our expressions of pastoral care. And the second goal was to strengthen faith to renew and strengthen our our faith toward God, preaching through the book of Hebrews, the latter portion, chapter 11, our series on the Protestant Reformation, I hope contribute to that end. But, But this series of Advent, this series, this Christmas season, has great potential to strengthen our faith. I would submit to you, This series is about that very thing, strengthening your faith in the one born named Jesus. The gospel accounts 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are really in your Bible for that very purpose. They're not mere biographies of Jesus. They are biographies, if you will, that make a claim on your life. They call a response forth for you to believe and to believe certain truths about this Jesus. And Matthew's gospel does that from the outset, beginning with this genealogy. This might seem a very tedious way to begin. Verses we usually skip over and wonder why in the world did they, they waste parchment on this section of Scripture. But think about it. Why do we do genealogies ourselves? Why do you do genealogies? You do so, I, I would think, to know where you came from. If you did a genealogy for myself, you'd find I'm largely English and German with some Scotch-Irish thrown in, my grandmother used to tell me. And so my genealogy would, would tell my story to a certain degree, and that's why this is here. It's telling you, it's outlining for you some things, some important background about the story of Jesus Christ. This passage is like what Sherlock Holmes said. The character said, the world... The world is full of obvious things which nobody by chance ever observes. That's how we treat this section. That's what this is like. Matthew has written it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be full of some obvious things that we rarely by chance take time to observe. And so this morning we're going to observe what God intentionally has shown us here that we might know what we must believe about this Jesus born at Christmas. So I want to see with you two things in particular. Two things to intentionally observe together, friends. Two things that will locate Jesus in his bigger story for you. Two things that you and I must believe. Here's the first. First, that Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the promised king. You see, right away, Matthew makes a claim calling us to believe something. He starts in verse 1 saying, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is the name. Christ really is the title. He is the Christ or the Messiah or the anointed one, you might say. A title that would resonate with Matthew's original Jewish audience. And now Matthew's going to take his genealogy to, as it were, verify that claim. It's kind of like if you ever hand a, a clerk a $100 bill, and they'll hold it up to the light to see if they can see the watermark in that $100 bill. They want to verify, authenticate that bill. Matthew's going to authenticate that claim with this genealogy. He's going to verify, show you Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, and really show you what kind of Messiah he's come to be. You see, he says next, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Notice the son of David in verse 1. The son of David. So Matthew wants you to see a connection between Jesus the Messiah and David, first of all. And so skip down to verse 6. Verse 6 where you read, And Jesse, the father of David, the king. So here's where David now reappears. Verse 6, 
Jesse, the father of David, the king. So David gets a title too, the king. And David, you'll notice, is a major hinge in this whole genealogy. Matthew wants us to connect Jesus, son of David, with David, the king. In other words, he wants you to connect Jesus with this royal lineage. Back to David, the king. You may have seen this week the news of Prince Harry's engagement to the American actress Meghan Markle. I saw an article out of the UK saying that she will not be called princess officially. I'm sure many will call her princess, but she will not be called princess officially because she is not of royal lineage. Matthew is showing you that Jesus is. Royal lineage. From Jesus the Christ to David the king. You say, so what? Well, the so what is found way back in your Old Testament in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7 where David, the king, wanted to build a house for God, a temple. And God said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to bring through you, David, a line of kings. And someone from that line is going to reign before me as king forever. It's, it's called a covenant, this solemn promise, this committed promise from God, a key covenant in your Bible, as God says to David, through you, I'm going to bring my king whose reign will never cease and whose kingdom will have no end. So Matthew wants you to connect with that promise. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the rightful heir to that throne. The fulfillment of those promises, a king whose reign will never end. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. It's often been said, hasn't it, that appearances are deceiving. I think that's very true of Christmas in particular. Appearances about Christmas, friends, they are deceiving. Don't be deceived. When we celebrate Christmas around here, we see lots of Christmas lights, fine thing. We see blow-up inflatable Santas. Not against that. It's a fine thing. We give presents. We, uh, we have Christmas blend at Starbucks, which is a great thing. It's always good. We have Black Friday shopping. Oh, oh, and then there's that, that charming little scene of the baby in the manger surrounded by farm animals. And that's Christmas for us, culturally speaking. But appearances there are deceiving. Christmas is about a king. The king of kings. You see, David, the king, was a great king of Israel, but he was also a major letdown. As verse 6 continues, look on in verse 6 as it goes on, turning on the hinge of David. It says, David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Catch that? David fathered a child by another man's wife. David abused his power as king, sexually exploited a woman named Bathsheba, and then had her husband murdered to cover it up. And didn't get much better after David. 
Solomon, his son, started off well, didn't end well. His grandson, Rehoboam, didn't do so good. The kingdom was divided under Rehoboam, and on it went from there. A few bright spots, I grant you, but for the most part, not so great. Really a line of failed kings from David. The kingdom was then destroyed, judged by God, rightfully, the people sent into exile. And so we read the next hinge of the whole list in verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's supposed to get your attention. The line of kings from David failed. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon. Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. So here's another hinge. Exile. Judgment. Oh, some people did return, but all those names you see in verses 13 to 15, all those names, they're not in the Old Testament. Matthew was a former tax collector. He surely knew well about the public register of names. He did his research. He provides you with this list of names. I think as if to say that broken, failed line of kings didn't fail entirely. God kept his promise. The true king has come. I couldn't help but think of the book and the movie, The Lord of the Rings. Maybe you were waiting for that. But it's a good illustration. A big theme, besides the hobbits and the ring, a big theme is this line of kings that has failed. But uh, Aragon has disguised himself as Strider, a ranger. He's on the scene, and he's the true heir to the throne. And I love the scene where things are looking pretty bleak. But Elrond, the kind of elf king, has had the, the sword that only the heir to the throne can wield. He's had that sword reforged, and he brings it to Aragon. And he says, Aragon, set aside the identity of Strider. Take up the mantle of who you are, the true king. And then he says, and go summon the army of the dead to whom they owe allegiance. They owe allegiance to the true king. And so Aragon goes under the mountain and confronts the king of the dead guys. <laughs> the dead army. And the... Uh, Dead army king laughs at Aragon and goes to strike him down. And Aragon wields the true sword of the true king. Shing! And you have this surprised look on the dead king's face. And he says this. He says, that blade was broken. And Aragon says, it has been remade. Isn't that good? And you say, yes. And that's what's happening here. And at Christmas, broken, failed line of kings. Oh, David, Solomon, what have you done? Now the true king is on the throne. He's come. He's arrived. And even, even notice, even notice how Matthew structures the whole thing in a very particular intentional way that Sherlock Holmes would have us observe. It's not a complete genealogy. Nope, don't mistake that. It, 
Matthew was intentionally selective. And then he tells us in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, the Messiah, 14 generations. He's being selective. He's highlighting this number. The whole thing is structured in three sections of 14. You should ask, why 14? What's the big deal about 14? Well, scholars debate this, but most seem to think that this is a reference to how, in the Hebrew language, they would assign numbers to letters. And guess what the letters for the Hebrew name David add up to? How many guesses do you want? I'll give you one. 14. It seems to be another way to say the true king has come. God has kept his promise. The king, the king who brings the kingdom of God. The king who brings the reign of God as king. You see, God, God always reigns. He always has, always will. But But this king brings the kingdom of God in this sense. It's the sense of the saving, transforming reign of God as king. His his saving sovereignty. His, His redeeming reign that transforms life and this world as we know it. The prophets we read earlier, they speak of a time when the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Another time when the children will play at the, at the den of poisonous snakes and not be harmed. They speak of swords being beaten into plowshares. Weapons of warfare being made into farm implements. Nuclear warheads being melted down and made into John Deere tractors. Why? Because there will be no more war. They are, they are images trying to, trying to help us grasp the transformation of this world under the kingdom of God when the king comes. You think about it. Think about the sexual harassment being exposed in media companies and corridors of power. It's things that are being revealed and and addressed that have been shamefully hidden. And that's how you could think of the kingdom of God in a way. One day when all will be revealed, nothing left in the shadows, everything hidden will be made known, and all that is wrong finally made right. Think about all that's wrong in the world. Just whatever comes to mind. Things that are broken in life, society, maybe your life. What, what's, been, what's been weighing you down recently? What's been tempting you to anger or anxiety? As you survey the news, what's just been so discouraging for you? Because it looks so broken. What is that for you? It's probably a list. Probably things at the geopolitical level. For me, I was tempted to anxiety as I read about North Korea. Might be the racial strife in this country that's been so real. 
and sad in 2017. It might be our socioeconomic problems, the, the cycles of poverty in some situations, the, the homeless at the intersections begging money from you. Friends, Christmas is not a call to neglect those things or ignore those things, but it is a call to believe that in the midst of them, the king is on the throne, and one day his transforming reign will make all of it right. Whatever is wrong will be made right. Or as Jesus says in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, behold, I am making all things new. That's his purpose in your life and in the earth. He's making all things new. Do you believe that? Christmas lifts us out of our cynicism, out of our hopelessness, if we do, if you do. Because of this king, one day, all wrongs will be made right. Because of this king, one day, all evils will meet perfect justice. All that should not be done will be undone. All that should be will be forever. Women won't be sexually harassed. Children won't be abused. Babies won't be stillborn. Baby, uh, bodies, our bodies won't get cancer. We won't get sick. We won't die. We won't suffer heartbreak. All who enter this kingdom by believing in this king will experience his kingdom of no sin, no sickness, no disease, and no death. Christmas calls us to that kind of hope. Maybe, maybe 2017 has been a hard year for you. I know, I know for a number of people here in this room, it's been a really hard year. You're probably eager to turn the page on the calendar. Maybe for some, um, you'd say, look, it's been a hard decade, okay? I know others who would say, in all honesty, it's, it's been a really hard life. And in no way am I trying to minimize that. I'm just saying that this king brings you hope as you do two things, and Joshua put them really well. Two things bring you hope. You look backward, believing Christ has come. The King who died for your sins rose from the grave, inaugurating His kingdom in the earth. You look backward and you look forward. You look forward, believing the same King will come again and will bring His kingdom in fullness, his saving, transforming reign perfected as he finishes what he started. There is hope held out to us at Christmas as you remember his first coming and long for his second. That's the first thing we must believe. Jesus is that promised king who restores everything. But there's more Matthew wants to teach us about this Messiah a second part of the story to observe. Secondly, Jesus is the promised blessing. He's the promised king, bringing the kingdom of God. He's the promised blessing. Look back at verse 1. I'm treating verse 1 really as kind of Matthew's outline. He says again, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, we saw that. 
And the son of Abraham, the son of Abraham, Luke, the gospel writer, he has a genealogy too, but he goes all the way back to Adam, the first man, showing Jesus' humanity. Matthew doesn't do that. He just goes back to Abraham, who lived around 2000 B.C. And so we, we read in verse 2, Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, who give rise to the nation of Israel. Matthew wants his readers, and God wants us, see that Jesus is tied in directly to Abraham. He, he's Jewish, but there's much more to this connection. Really, the connection I think Matthew wants us to see is to look all the way back to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and Genesis chapter 12, to another covenant, another promise God made. There God called a rather ordinary guy named Abram, later Abraham, who lived in a, a place known for its moon worship. So this guy was probably a moon worshiper. Nevertheless, God in His grace said, Abraham, I want you to know me. Hey, come here. <laughs> he reveals himself to Abraham, gives him a unique, special promise, establishing this special relationship. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great people. I'm going to give you all a land. Oh, and by the way, through you is going to come blessing to all peoples of the earth. Don't try this at home key promise in your Bible. It's kind of the headwaters of God's working of salvation in earth. All families, all nations, all ethnicities are going to experience blessing through Abraham's family. And Matthew illustrates that in a very interesting way. He includes a number of women in this genealogy. And that would have been unusual, not unheard of, but rather unusual so unusual that it's meant to get your attention. In no way to put these ladies down, but I think to get your attention and make a point. To communicate something to you. You see, if you are going to include ladies in a genealogy in Matthew's day, you would certainly include the great matriarchs of Israel. You would include Abraham's wife, Sarah. You might include Isaac's wife, Rebecca, and others like them. But that's not what Matthew does. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 we read, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by, by Tamar. And then verse 5, And Salmon, the father of Boaz by, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by, by Ruth. So we have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. Matthew's readers would observe right away the Gentile or non-Jewish associations here. See, Tamar, back in the book of Genesis, was a local girl, it seems, probably, probably a Canaanite of the people God was kicking out of the land of Canaan for their sins. Rahab, also a Canaanite from the town of Jericho, where Joshua led the people into the land. Ruth, a Moabite. She was a great gal, but the Moabites were excluded from the assembly of Israel for ten generations. And of course, he's alluded, he does allude to Bathsheba, but mentions her as the wife of a Hittite, probably that we would associate her with the Hittites. Do you see the point being illustrated? The baby born at Christmas is the blessing for the nations. 
the blessing promised in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. He's come for people of every race, every culture, every language. He's come for Chaldeans fleeing from Iraq. He's, coming, he's come for Syrians fleeing civil war. He's come for those who are black and those who are white, those who are Asian, those who are Hispanic. He's come to purchase a people for himself from every tribe, language, people, and nation to form the multiracial, multicultural church of Jesus Christ. Matthew's already teaching us that. So that when we get to the end of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 28, where the ascended, arisen Jesus, rather, says, go to all nations, it makes total sense for us. We say, oh yeah, we were prepared for that way back in chapter 1. We were, uh, we were in Yosemite last week. And it's so striking to me how you can be at this national park around miles of wilderness and you hear an incredible number of languages spoken in the cafeteria. Or you assemble with the other mobs of people at Yosemite Falls, and it is this incredible multicultural, multiracial scene. It's amazing to me. People from around the world are there, assembled around the falls, and that's to be our vision for the church of Jesus Christ. All races assembled around the throne. It's to be, I would submit to even, our hope for Grace Church. That as much as God will enable us, we'd be a racially diverse, multicultural people. Because it reflects what God is doing in the earth. But this is not, it's not just about Gentile associations that Matthew's readers would have been struck by. They would have been struck by some of the scandalous implications of this list. Tamar, Tamar tricked her father-in-law Judah to have intercourse with her, playing the part of a prostitute. Now, Judah had relegated her to widow, widowhood Judah had more than his share of guilt. But Tamar did some unsavory things, and she's here in the royal line. Uh, Rahab didn't pretend to be a prostitute. She was one. Yet she's in the great hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11. Add in Bathsheba, who was sexually exploited by David. Add in Ruth, the Moabite. And what do you get here? Well, you get unusual marriages, you get suspicious backgrounds, I guess you could say, and you get some sexual scandals, probably to counter some of the charges about Jesus' own irregular birth. But there's more than that. On top of that, many of these kings were, were blatantly evil, many of these kings that are listed. Some were good, a few. A few. But you've got kings like, like Manasseh, who offered his son child sacrifice to a pagan god. Does it get worse than that? He seemed to repent later on, but that's big time bad. And don't forget David, sexually abusive adulterer and, and murder. It's not a nice, pretty, 
pedigree that we should be proud of here. If you asked me about the trainer family line, I, I'm sure in my arrogance would seek to highlight things that might impress you. I would tell you about my great-grandfather who was a doctor and a lawyer. I'm told he would perform surgeries on the kitchen table. I had another great-grandfather who was an architect who designed stately buildings still standing on the campus of the University of Maryland. His daughter, my great-aunt, was the first female architect in the state of Maryland. My grandfather was a prominent accountant in the federal government, my father a top executive for different corporations, my uncle is a noted federal death penalty attorney. I'm not saying any of those things are the measure of success according to the Bible. I'm just saying that's what I would highlight in the trainer family tree. There are many things I wouldn't want you to know. There are many situations I wouldn't want to tell you about. I wouldn't want to tell you about the alcoholism that's rampant in the trainer family tree. I wouldn't want to tell you about that great-grandfather that I mentioned who abandoned his family, my ancestors, and left them on their own. I wouldn't want to tell you about the blatant racism in some of my family. The dear grandmother who told me she supported the KKK, the grandfather that was a committed racist. I wouldn't want to tell you about the broken marriages, the broken families, and the destroyed lives. I wouldn't want you to know about the dark side of the trainer family tree. Why does Matthew do that for Jesus? He's really showing you what kind of blessing Jesus is. It's not just whatever race, but no matter your background, and no matter the sinful mess you've made of your life, this Jesus is for you. The reality is, as a pastor friend of mine put it, you don't have to go back very far in your family tree to see someone in need of Jesus Christ. You have to look in the mirror. Right? My sin may not be as publicly scandalous as King David or Matthew Lauer or Harvey Weinstein. But there's plenty of sin in my life to show you that I need a Savior every day. And friend, that's true of you too. If you think you can distance yourself from the Rahabs and the Manassas of this list, I think you should think again. You may have grown up in a church home and be a wonderful person and a good citizen of the United States and be spotless on the outside, but the Bible says you were born corrupt on the inside. We all have, if you will, Rahab's within. So don't distance yourself from your need of this blessing. Examine your heart. The Christmas will be more meaningful to you if you do. Are, are your, all of your motives even pure today? Are they? I'm not sure any of my motives are 100% ivory pure. I'm going to assume they're not. There's some selfishness in each one. Isn't that true for you? I was sitting in a stoplight driving here thinking, I 
should give God thanks for the opportunity to proclaim his word. I rarely give God thanks for his many blessings. I was aware I need this blessing. Friend, if you see your need for him and you believe, then you'll rejoice. Then you'll be glad. Then Christmas will be a wonderful Christmas for you. Or maybe you're here feeling on the other end of the spectrum disqualified from God. Maybe you're feeling condemned by your sin. I think Matthew, I think God has you especially in mind. Jesus Christ, he's saying, entered the filth and guilt and shame of our sin to be this redeeming, rescuing blessing for all who believe. That's what he's saying. If you will believe in him. John Calvin, the reformer, captures this. This is a lengthy quote, but I think it might be helpful. Track it with me. Calvin once said, let us also remember that we are all in the same condition as Abraham, the former moon worshiper going to a, a land he was promised, called to be a great uh, family, you know, great patriarch with uh, little prospects. Let us remember our, our condition is the same as Abraham. Our circumstances are in all opposition, all in opposition to the promises of God. Notice this. God promises us immortality. We are surrounded by mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just, righteous in his sight, yet we are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious, favorable, and kind to us, yet outward signs we think threaten his wrath. What then are we to do? Friend, what are you to do? I love Calvin's advice. We must close our eyes, disregard ourselves, and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. And I would add, believing the promises that he's brought forth in his son for you. Think about it. Can you relate to those things? I cannot believe the promises of immortality because my body is sick. I have relatives dying. I see mortality, death, corruption, disease. I cannot believe his promise to count me righteous before him. I'm condemned by my sin. I'm overwhelmed by my guilt. I can't believe he is favorable and kind to me. Life is so hard. Friends, close your eyes. Disregard yourself. Look this Christmas outside of you. Look outside of yourself and look upwards to the blessing who has come for you. His life, his death, his resurrection. And believe. Rest in who he is for you right now. You see, I left out the most important part of Jesus' story. Saved it for last. Verse 16. And Jacob, father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, or Messiah. Now there's something a little nuanced here. There's a change of language. 
from father of or ancestor of is now changed to Mary of whom Jesus was born. It goes from active to passive. Active fathering, you might say, to passive of whom Jesus was born. Why? Because the child conceived did not have a father of this world. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and miraculously, the child conceived was God and man. God in the flesh. Perfect God and perfect man. And friends, that's how he can be the king who restores everything. And that's how he can be the blessing who rescues you, if you will but believe. The God-man, God in flesh, Emmanuel has come. We want to end by celebrating Him and really asking God the Holy Spirit to minister to us through the bread and the cup that we would believe. The takeaway is believe. Believe these things. Believe He's the King who restores everything. Believe He's the saving, redeeming blessing from God for you right now.